2: Hi there, and welcome to the Explaining History podcast. And today I want to talk uh, a bit about Rudolf Hurst, the Commandant of Auschwitz. One of the reasons I, I want to talk about this is, I guess, kind of personal. And I work as a Holocaust educator, and um, I take school groups around Auschwitz um, a couple of times a year. And at Auschwitz 1, the main um, prison camp for... Um, Polish political prisoners. Rudolf Hesse's house is on site, and uh, it's uh, a large and rather sumptuous, and rather fine-looking uh, uh, mid-European um, piece of architecture. It's, um, and it's within um, the within the eye, within eyesight of the small gas chamber and crematoria that existed at Auschwitz 1 um the The thing that always um, surprises the students that I take is how a family when Hearst lived there with his wife and his six children could um, live uh, somewhere like uh, like Auschwitz and um, not be perturbed by it and the thing about the stil- story of Rudolf Hurst as we're going to look at today raises a number of really troubling questions. The thing about studying the Holocaust is that it offers um, potentially offers more questions than it answers and there are no answers I think to some of the things that we, we learn about it and herarse's case studying the uh, the perpetrator um, of the Holocaust one of the chief perpetrators of the Holocaust is um, a, a really really interesting one uh, and again it's unsettling um, how someone could live at Auschwitz One, how they their wife um, Frau Heuer had a very enjoyable time at Auschwitz One, um, and recorded it in her diary some of the happiest days of her life. How that was possible. Um, how the Heuer's children, um, who many some of whom were quite traumatised by their um, their childhood, now as quite elderly adults. I say quite traumatized have been absolutely destroyed throughout their entire adult lives with the the guilt and the shame of of the of where they come from um, but they were, were able as children to function within this environment so hers had like many of the uh, high ranking members of the Nazi party, served in the first world war he was born in Baden Baden in November nineteen hundred and uh, he had been an obedient child, um, had a, an authoritarian uh, Catholic family and knew that really obeying orders as a child was what life was all about. He served uh, with the uh, in the Ottoman Empire um, during the First World War, um, showing up the Turkish front for the German army and gained an iron cross. He was uh, wounded, injured several times during the war. And he joined the Freikorps after the war, so he was a very much a um, a rootless and drifting um figure, um looking for some sort of sense of purpose. Um and he joined the Freikorps where he made friends with the former uh, with the, the later um Nazi grandee Martin Bormann. And it was in Munich in nineteen twenty two when Rudolf Hurst um, finally, um, met, uh, well, he finally listened to Adolf Hitler, um, and joined the Nazi party. Um, the following year, he and his Freikorps comrades murdered a, uh, a communist activist, Walter Kado. Um, they, um, kidnapped him and beat him to death. Um, and in 1923, um, one of the killers, um, this is, doesn't say much for the intellect of your average tri-core man um, told the story of the killing to a local newspaper and Hearst was arrested and tried um, as the leader of the gang and given ten years in, in prison um, Hearst uh, seems to have had this, this, this kind of um, lurid and graphic um, fascination with what he'd done and a horror and an abjection uh, with what he'd done uh, uh, as well and when he was in prison, he, he frequently commentated, he commented on the, uh, the, the, the social strata of the prison. He was horrified and disgusted by the dirtiness of prison. And he was appalled by the, the, kind of the, the lower orders that he met there. Um, he thought that there were plenty of men who, if they were given the chance for some rehabilitation and a bit of effort... Uh, and a bit of uh, education would make you know fine, upstanding members of society again. But there was also a sort of a strata, kind of a, a sort of a lump and proletariat, I, I guess you'd call them, who um, Hearst thought were utterly un- unreformable. He never really, in all his writings, viewed himself as being who uh, viewed himself as being an outsider in prison, an observer of the sociology of the prison, not a criminal himself. He didn't sort of see himself in in that light. Um he was released in nineteen twenty eight as there was a, a, a general amnesty. The communists and the, the Nazis um in the um the Reichstag agreed between one another to am of running short of men and um, you know, street fighters to press for a general amnesty and to support one another in order to achieve this. is one of the temporary and strangely paradoxical arrangements that you find between the Nazis and the communists during the 1920s. Uh, and following his um, release from prison, he married his his wife Hedwig, um, and they had five children together, and, and a further is born later on. And he also became good friends with Heinrich Himmler, um, and in 1934 joined the Schutzstaffel, the SS. Um, his first role of any significance was a, as a guard at Dachau, and Dachau is interesting. Dachau is um, very much a kind of a training school for um, the the death camp generation. You find an awful lot of um, Dachau men that go on to manage um, the the kind of the, the death camps in, in in Poland. Obviously, Dachau itself isn't a death camp; it's a concentration camp though perhaps not particularly good for one's health. One of the first people he met who was impressed by him was the camp commandant Theodore Eich, who said, that there, "'There were times when we had no coats, no boots, no socks. "'We are so much as a murmur. "'Our men wore their own clothes on duty. "'We were generally regarded as, an, uh, we were generally regarded as a necessary evil "'that only cost money. "'Little men of no consequence standing um, guard behind barbed wire.'" The pay of my officers and men, meagre though it was, I had to beg for the ver- for various state finances. As Oberfuhrer, I earned in um, Dachau 230 mark- Reichmarks per month. I was fortunate because I enjoyed the confidence of my Reichsfuhrer, Heinrich Himmler. At the beginning, there was not a single cartridge, not a single rifle, let alone machine guns. Only three of my men knew how to operate a machine gun. They slept in drafty factory halls. Everywhere there was poverty and want. At the time, these men belonged to the SS District South. They left it to me to take care of my men's troubles, but unasked sent me um, sent men they wanted to be rid of in Munich for some reason or another. These misfits polluted my unit and troubled its state of mind. I had to contend with disloyalty, embezzlement, and corruption. So the early days of, of Dachau are not what we think, or not what we're popularly, um, are, 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 not what are popularized. The the early days of Dachau, far from it being a kind of a remorseless imprisoning machine, was a, a poorly funded, um, threadbare operation. It was um, riven with incompetence, with um, corruption, and um, the there were all sorts of uh, of shortcomings. Uh, the first concentration camps, in essence, were, were prepared so hastily that they were um, essentially warehouses with barbed wire wrapped around them in, in, in many cases. By 1938, Hirst had become an ss um a, a captain, and um, he had been made adjutant to Hermann Baranovsky, who was the commandant of Sachsenhausen. Um, and then he joined the Waffen-SS. So he was he, he graduated back into the kind of the fighting wing of, of the, the SS. And in May 1940, he was given um, custodianship of, he was made commandant of Auschwitz uh, in Poland. Now, most of what we know about Rudolf Hirst comes from a, a book, well, I say a book, uh, almost an essay he wrote in captivity that is now published in a, a posthumously uh, in a book um, called Commandant of Auschwitz. This book was written after Hurs had been captured by the British Army and knew he was on trial and was probably fairly confident he wasn't going to get away without being hanged for for war crimes. And uh, some of the things that he writes in the book um, are... are Difficult from the standpoint of um, the the onlooker or the reader. Some of the things he writes in the book challenge our perceptions in in a very, very difficult way. He appears to be accepting full responsibility, acknowledging how horrific the crimes he had carried out were, and that um, he is responsible and deserves to die. These are not the things that we expect to hear from Nazi war criminals. Now, by the way, before I get a flood of um, angry letters, nothing that I say here is in any way meant to detract from the fact that this man was a, a perpetrator and a, a war criminal. Far, you know, I don't intend to detract from that at all. It's certainly not my purpose. But what I do want to show is is that... Um, He's the kind of war criminal, um, the kind of perpetrator of um, genocide that doesn't easily fit into the preconceived model that we have. And I think it's important to look at this because it means that we have to abandon models. We have to kind of junk that as a concept as much as possible because each war criminal, each murderer is as distinct as each victim. They, there are similarities between them. Um, if you read Gita Sireni's um, interviews with Franz Stengel, there are certain interesting parallels be- between him and Rudolf Hirst, but um, certainly um, the, a document like Commander Auschwitz is really, really quite revealing. So he says...
0: when in- Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row?
1: In the
2: summer of 1941, uh, Hitler gave me the order to prepare the installations to Auschwitz where mass exterminations could take place, and personally carry out these exterminations. I did not have the slightest idea of their scale or consequences. Now, here he is referring to Auschwitz-Birkenau, not Auschwitz I. It was certainly an extraordinary and monstrous order. Nevertheless, the reasons behind the extermination programme seemed to me right. I did not reflect on it at the time. I had just—I had been given an order, and I had to carry it out. Whether this mass extermination of the Jews was necessary or not was something on which I could not allow myself to form an opinion, for I lacked the necessary breadth of view. Now, those are some extraordinary kind of dodges of personal responsibility. Later on in his writing, he gets—he—he he really um, does uh, um, embrace um, responsibility. Some people might listen to this and think, "Well, of course, he was going to say these things anyway. He was on trial for his life." But I don't think so. I don't think so. Um, I think he knew the outcome. I, I think if you were on trial at Nuremberg, the chances of getting away with it were, were very slim. And this was not a this is not a cowardly man. This was not a man who was averse to um, uh, physical uh, uh, to to danger. Um, this is a man who had uh, been injured again the Iron Cross uh, and had had faced his demise on a number of occasions before I believe and this is simply my opinion that what we're going to hear here was a genuine expression of his own own sentiments he presents us with another very challenging uh, view that of the um, SS men who were distressed by their work? Now, again, it it is not for us to um, express sympathy for these men. They were doing monstrous and, and and wicked deeds, but it presents us with a new level of complexity in understanding the the monstrous, the, the monstrous act. Um, he says. The mass extermination, this mass extermination, with all its attendant circumstances, did not, as I know, fail to affect those who took part in it. With very few exceptions, nearly all those, de- those details to do this monstrous work, and who, like myself, have given sufficient thought to the matter, have been deeply marked by these events. Many of the men involved approached me as I went my rounds um, through the, examination, the extermination buildings and poured out their their anxieties and impressions to me in the hope that I could allay them. Again and again, during these confidential conversations, I was asked, is it necessary that we do this? Is it necessary that hundreds of thousands of women and children be destroyed? And I, who in my innermost being... Had on countless occasions asked myself exactly the same question. Could only fob them off and attempt to console them by repeating that it was done on Hitler's order. I had to tell them that this, this extermination of the Jews had to be, so that Germany and our posterity might be freed forever from their relentless adversaries. There was no doubt in my mind, in the mind of any of us, that Hitler's order had to be obeyed regardless, and that it was uh, it was the duty of the SS to carry it out. Nevertheless, we were all tormented by secret downs. On the uh, other side of the discussion, Hearst did say candidly that um, he believed that the the gassing process had a calming effect on him. He'd had a horror of shooting, thinking that, uh, and because shooting itself, and this was widely documented on the Russian front amongst the the Wehrmacht and the Einsatzgruppen, uh, killing individuals up close, civilians, had a a profoundly um, distressing psychological impact on on the SS men. Hearst often talked about his own, um, in what he viewed as his own, emotional and sensitive disposition, and he used all manner of psychological ploys and defences in order to kind of mitigate this. Um, he viewed himself as um, vulnerable. They, they had to protect himself and create this uh, harsh and violent and austere um, alter ego, this personality. Um, and indeed, he, he was um, successful in disassociating from that side of, of himself. Uh, this is disassociation. It's a very common behavior from all you know, all sorts of people in all sorts of walks of life. Who were able to disassociate themselves from how they really feel in order to cope with the realities of, of the world around them. And um, the world that that Hearst lived in, without trying to make any kind of mitigating argument for the man, um, required him to be this kind of um, dis- distant, uh, distant individual, and yet one who was able to have this kind of rounded family life. It's im the you know there are there's a whole collection of images out there of kind of Nazis with their families of Reinhard Heydrich enjoying um, a happy family life and uh, laughing with his um, uh, his children. So this was it was not uncommon for people to be able to hive off these aspects of themselves. The um, SS um, women who worked as administrative staff um, were... After a, a week at Auschwitz, enjoy a kind of a, a work outing, a, a, a few days away at a nearby resort, where they would um, have, have a good time and eat well and, um, and relax. And without uh, seemingly uh, much to trouble their consciences, they were perhaps slightly less hands-on in what was happening um, at. Auschwitz-Birkenau. Most of the women at Auschwitz-Birkenau would have been um, clerical and, and administrative staff, uh, and yet that they they could in, enjoy enjoy their work. And the, the work at Auschwitz-Birkenau was interpreted as kind of essentially unpleasant but necessary. That the SS were really doing the job of kind of fumigating the Reich. That, I mean, I don't like to talk in these, these horrendous terms, but this is how they thought. Um, that They thought that as a kind of uh, an, an unpleasant but essential job needed to be done. In 1947, Hurst, at his trial, said the following things. I commanded Auschwitz up to the 1st of December 1943 and estimates that at least 2.5 million victims were killed and disposed of there by gassing and burning. He's kind of overestimating the numbers killed at Auschwitz-Birkenau, but anyway. Um, At least a further half million died of starvation and illness, which makes a total of 3 million dead. The number represents about 70 or 80% of all the people who were sent to Auschwitz as prisoners. Very young children, being incapable of working, were killed as a matter of principle. Often women tried to hide uh, their children under their clothes, um, and when they were found, they were once sent to their deaths. Here is a man with six children. He has a revealing entry about the first transportations of Jews to the camp. He said, The gassing was carried out in the detention uh, cells of Block 2 protected by a gas mask, I watched the killing myself this is talking about uh, Auschwitz I the Russians were ordered to undress in the anteroom and then quietly entered the mortuary uh, for they had been told they were to be deloused the, the doors were sealed uh, so this is before the Jews arrived this, this was the um, the Russian POWs the, um, the doors were sealed and gas was shaken through holes in the roof I do not know how long this killing took for a little while, a humming sound could be heard. When the powder was thrown in, there were cries of gas and then great bellowing as trapped prisoners hurled themselves against both doors. But the doors held. They were opened several hours later so that the press might be aired, and then I saw, for the first time, uh, gassed bodies in the mass. The killing of Russian prisoners of war did not concern me at the time. The order had been given, and I had to carry it out. I must even admit that the gassing set my mind at rest for the mass extermination of the Jews was to, was to start soon and at that time neither Eichmann nor I was certain about how these mass killings were to be carried out. In the spring of 1942 the first transports of Jews all earmarked for extermination arrived from Upper Silesia. It was at most important that the whole business of arriving and undressing should take place in an atmosphere of the greatest possible calm. People reluctant to take, take off their clothes had to be helped by those of their companions who had already undressed, or by the men of the special detachment. That's on the commando. Many of the women hid their babies among piles of clothing. To the men of the special detachment were particularly on the lookout for this, and would speak words of encouragement to the women until they persuaded her to take a child with her. So these are, are Jewish prisoners who, are, um, being, who are, uh, have no choice but to participate in the whole process. Many of the women um, I noticed that women who either guessed or knew what was awaiting them nevertheless found the courage to joke with the children and encourage them, despite the mortal terror visible in their own eyes. One woman approached me as she walked past and pointed to her four children, who were manfully helping the smallest ones over the rough ground, and whispered, How can you bring yourself to kill such beautiful, darling children? Have you no heart at all? One old man, as he passed me, hissed, Germany will pay a heavy penance for this mass murder of the Jews. His eyes glowed with a hatred as he said this. Nevertheless, he calmly walked into the gas chamber. I think what's troubling about this is that when um, a monster, a monstrous human being, has human traits, um, and they do because they are human, it reminds us that they are no more or less human than we are, and that there are distinct parallels between um, the the normal, in for want of a better word, parts of their behaviour, and ours, and this makes it much harder for us to cope with um, hideous events and crimes like the Holocaust, because we can't disassociate ourselves from them. We can't simply create um, a um, a monster we have to view as as a human being as is on some level infinitely connected to as a part of the same species that we we all we all inhabit and then it suggests that you know perhaps there are um, aspects to all of us that are you know potentially violent or intolerant or, or all these things i do hope not by the way i hope explaining history listeners are are lovely people and i'm sure you guys all are um, so that's why in accounts of the holocaust I believe um documents like um Auschwitz Commandant um eh, are not very popular. They are um f- they're firstly accused of you know playing into um the manipulations of uh, of war criminals and perhaps that's the case. But also they make people feel generally um unsettled and uneasy. And if anything We require the Holocaust to give us simple answers of binary opposites, good and evil. Which indeed, um, there are evils there. But unfortunately, the Holocaust very rarely gives us unblemished goods either. Anyway, on that cheery note, I'm going to catch you next time on the Explaining History podcast. And if you want to explore this further... Go to the Explaining History website and get yourself Julia Routledge's brilliant ebook, The Genocidal Century. You'll absolutely thank yourself for it later on. Um, and uh, yes, I'll catch you on the next Explaining History podcast. Bye bye. Hold
0: up.